Hello and welcome to our discussion this morning about how the not-for-profit and charity sector in Australia can navigate the potentially perilous impact of COVID-19 on their financial viability. Our discussion is designed to provide some insights, advice, guidance and support for those in the sector who are perhaps wondering how to deal with this unpredictable and confronting situation. Here to help us in that discussion, our guests are Anna Longley, the Assistant Commissioner General Counsel at the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission, Sarah Wickham, Policy and Research Director at Philanthropy Australia, and James Wagg, Executive Director at advisory and investment firm Corda Mentha Corporate. And I'm Nick Richardson from Philanthropy Australia. Welcome to you all and thank you for your time. So let's get underway and try and get a sense of what's happened out there to so many of our charities and not-for-profits. The financial effect of COVID-19 has been felt deeply amongst many of those in the sector. Sarah Wickham, what do you see is occurring among those members of Philanthropy Australia? Look, um, what we do know, like many other industries in Australia, charities are certainly feeling um, the effects of COVID. We have heard a lot from our members and the broader charity sector that there is certainly decline in donations, revenues cut back significantly from um, closures of programs and service delivery. We've seen thousands of jobs already lost in the sector and significant jobs and uh, drops in volunteering, which is, a, as we all know, a really critical resource that the sector relies on. If we look at these impacts, that is in and of itself quite difficult, but it's compounded by the fact that at this point in time, the services they deliver are even more urgent and relied upon during the pandemic. So we know that our charities are being pinched on many levels and at the same time, they are required to be providing more support and more needs to vulnerable communities during the pandemic. We also know that JobKeeper is keeping a lot of the sector afloat at this time. So we do know that early research from Social Ventures in Australia and the Centre for Social Impact is um, predicting 20% fall of revenue in the sector. And after JobKeeper ends, we could lose up to 200,000 jobs. And we also know that um, early research from JB Weir is predicting over um, this year and next year a, a drop of giving in 20% is likely. So about 7% um, of donations will fall in 2020 and then a further just shy of 12% next financial year as well. So this is going to take giving levels back to 2012. This means that um, we will see a significant decline in giving in the sector. And once a charity loses um, a donor, it does cost a lot more to invest in finding new ones. So it's definitely tough times ahead for the sector, especially after JobKeeper um, closes and next financial or this financial year, 2021, is likely to be a lot more challenging for the finan- um, than the financial year we've just passed. Thanks, Sarah. Anna, from the regulator's point of view, what do you see as the uh, what's occurred on the ground? Thank you very much, Nick. Yes, we have heard quite a number of concerns from varying charities about how the pandemic is affecting their financial situation, as well as their ability to meet their obligations. Um, And both of those are really having an impact on charities and how they operate. We've seen quite a bit of media as well as had contact from particular charities that do outline some certain financial situations that charities are finding themselves in. 
Sarah has mentioned some of those uh, issues that have arisen, um, and they do include things like fundraising events. Now, a number of charities will hold one or two large fundraising events in a year, and the current situation means they've been unable to do so. So that really has had a significant impact on their ability to continue operations or at least to continue operations in the way that they had. Also, normal operations have been impacted as well, uh, including service delivery, and that may well be just because of the inability to bring people together to bring about that service delivery. The availability of volunteers is an issue for them. It may well also mean that they've had to bring on staff in lieu of volunteers, which of course is a real cost impact on the organisations. Uh, from a record-keeping point of view as well, some of our charities have been impacted by the fact that they have not had the ability to keep records electronically. That's not something that they had implemented prior to the pandemic. Uh, and that has meant that their ability to share the record keeping between members of the organisation or responsible persons has been limited. They've been unable in some instances to hold meetings. Annual general meetings is, is one of those, as well as regular board meetings. Some of that has been impacted by their constitution, which means that they're actually unable to uh, meet other than face-to-face. -face. There have also been instances where charities because of restrictions on operations, have been unable to continue to pursue their charitable purpose in the same way. And that's meant some of them have had to restrict their operations. I think also there is the continuing obligations on charities to properly manage financial affairs. Some charities have found it difficult for their responsible persons to meet and to enable them to look through financial affairs in an effective manner. There is also an obligation under our Governance Standard 5 to ensure that charities do not operate while insolvent. That's been impacted in the present time as well due to charities being unable to meet in the way that they normally and regularly would. Thanks, Anna. Insolvency, which you just mentioned, is is clearly a confronting issue for a number of charities and, and not-for-profits. From your perspective, James, at Cordamentha, can you give us an overview about what that insolvency issue looks like for a not-for-profit or a charity, please? Absolutely. So I think uh, before I dive into that, Anna and um, Sarah just made some really interesting comments specifically focused on the not-for-profit sector. I think, you know, the comments that I will make from uh, from a quarter perspective is, you know, this virus doesn't discriminate between the people that contract it um, and it doesn't discriminate between the businesses that are impacted by it. So we work primarily with, uh, with the private sector um, and large government uh, organisations at quarter the impacts that uh, the private and public sector organisations are, are feeling financially do relate to also not-for-profit sectors. The factors um, that you guys have just uh, described um, are exactly what everyone in the economy is, is feeling at the moment. And I think 
JobKeeper has been referenced a couple of times already. Um, it's really the lifeblood of the, uh, the Australian economy at the moment in the private and not-for-profit sector. And as we follow through with this conversation, we'll start to talk a bit about what businesses can prepare for now um, for the event that JobKeeper and other subsidies, which may be keeping them alive when, when they eventually do come to an end um, and that support is withdrawn, you really need to have a plan now to, uh, you know, for, for that event. Um, so it's, it's not something that you need to think about um, in three to four months time. Nick, you asked specifically about insolvency. I think quarter mentor is, uh, is well known in, in the corporate restructuring and insolvency industry. Mm-hmm. We have vast experience working with companies through, uh, through distress times, um, both in the insolvent, formal insolvent process and, um, and outside of it. I think the important point is that charities and not-for-profits, you know, like any other organisation, directors have an obligation, an overarching obligation, not to trade whilst insolvent. And being solvent is described as being able to pay your debts as they are due and payable. So our advice is, you know, take action now if you think that you know, insolvency is an option. And we'll talk a bit throughout this conversation about what, uh, what that action might be. Sarah Wickham, from Philanthropy Australia's point of view, what do you feel about the level of understanding within the sector about the whole idea of solvency? Um, From a philanthropic funder's perspective, it's important to understand that most charities do get this right. Um, And it's important not to underestimate the knowledge and experience of our not-for-profit leaders and the board directors who have tackled tough issues and tight budgets many times throughout their career. So um, as much as this pandemic is um, a very challenging and stressful time for this sector, it's not the first time and it won't be the last time that this sector goes through challenges of this magnitude and not that long ago the sector has bounced back from the GFC, which is, you know, a slim, uh, could be compared as a similar um, economic impact that we are facing now. So I do think that this is um, not a new issue for the sector and most philanthropic funders will be aware as they have developed relationships with the charities they fund that this is um, an issue that many charities face at some point in time and most of the charities that are supported by philanthropists do operate in good faith with experts. I would agree with what James said earlier that size isn't an issue here. Size doesn't discriminate when we do have charities or not-for-profits where there is something that goes wrong financially. I think we've seen that happen in, in charities of all sizes. So it does come down to the governance leadership of these charities and and certainly as philanthropic funders to ensure that you are doing your due diligence to make sure that those around the decision-making table have the um, training and requirements needed. And I would say um, there is a responsibility for funders as critical partners for the, for the charities they support to play a role in, in helping charities to understand what support or resources or needs they um, may need when they get either to this point or before this point um, when they think they may be in trouble. And I think, you know, on the issue of size, the only other thing that I would say is that both large and small charities play quite a critical role in um, the Australian not-for-profit ecosystem. So even though we assume rightly that some of the larger charities will have more significant reserves and receive more government support to deliver service delivery needs for the community, 
Um, we know that in many cases, small charities do also work quite effectively across many places and sectors to ensure communities receive effective, you know, delivery of, of programs and services and needs. So I think that um, insolvency is an issue that most charities are certainly aware of. Um, philanthropists need to do their bit to ensure that the charities they're partnering with are given the support and networks that they could potentially bring to the table. And I do feel that when it comes to this situation, size doesn't discriminate. Thanks, Sarah. Anna, from your organisation's perspective at the ACNC, what do you see about how charities and the not-for-profits actually deal with the issue of insolvency? I think it is important to understand uh, in the context of this discussion that across the 57,000 odd charities that are registered with the ACNC, there is a wide range of sizes of charities, of experience of responsible persons and of professional background of responsible persons as well. And so there will be also a wide range of understanding as to good financial management, understanding where there may be a financial issue occurring, how to identify some of those early warning signs where you might have financial difficulties. And I think that is why it's very important for all responsible persons. And by responsible persons, I'm I'm talking about maybe directors or committee members, essentially the governing body of the charity. It's important for them all to educate themselves as much as possible on what their obligations are. There is a range of material on the acnc.gov.au website that can assist those, particularly, say, some of those smaller charities that may not have the same level of access to professional assistance. But there isn't actually a lot of data available around the types of organisations that may be more or less susceptible to solvency issues or financial issues. And I think what we've seen over the past four or so months is that organisations that may have been in a very strong financial position due to changes in the environment that were completely unanticipated, fortunes have changed very rapidly. Mm. Um, And I think even some of the smaller organisations that you may think may not be able to weather financial storms in the same way, we may actually have found they weren't as impacted. Maybe they were able to continue operations or maybe they were able to very quickly go into a state of perhaps hibernation, if Mm. you will, such that they didn't actually have the same financial issues as some of the other perhaps larger charities, perhaps those that may be relied upon by a significant proportion of the community. I suppose that's the very long way of saying, unfortunately, I, I will have to agree with Sarah, that there's not really a way to tell who's going to be uh, in the most trouble. You raised a, a phrase that I think um, a lot of people in the sector are kind of well well aware of, and James, perhaps um, you can explore this here. What do you think the warning signs might be? I think there are a lot of organisations who are feeling very vulnerable and sensitive. So what do they need to be looking out for in these circumstances that gives them the best indication 
of their solvency status. Yeah, it's, it's a really important theme. Looking at warning signs and giving yourself time and optionality um, is the most important thing in navigating a distressed environment. So the earlier you accept that there is difficulty on the horizon, the more time you have to plan you know, alternate courses and, and get on top of it. Um, so what we advise our clients is, you know, really get back to basics and, you know, get a real focus on your finances and your financial um, forecasts and budgets. So build them out, test the assumptions and with respect to not-for-profits, the key warning signs which, um, which Anna and Sarah have raised really do evolve around the future forecast donation receipts. So for charities that have one or two big events a year in a physical location, which is just not feasible in the, you know, in the current world, in the current environment, what will happen to those receipts? Is there another way? I think you know, that's, that's one of the other things that this has done. It's actually forced people to get really creative about you know, how they embrace technology and really forced them to change the way that they've, uh, they've done things. It's a good chance to rethink um, you know, how you can actually drive donations using virtual events um, or other ways to engage your donors. I think so revenue is one side um, that we always advise our clients, just you know, look and test the assumptions. With respect to the cost of an organization, really in this environment, cash is king. So you need to preserve cash as much as possible. And that's exactly what we're advising all of our clients and, and how to unlock cash from assets and, and how to store it for, you know, for a rainy day to ensure survival. I think that is the absolute key. Make sure you understand exactly how you are spending your cash. It's a scarce resource in good times, but it's a particularly scarce resource in, in distress times. So you need to make sure that every dollar that you do spend is going to, to the right cause and purpose. So really focus on how you can cut your costs down I think James uh, makes some good points about the opportunity for charities in this time to look for innovative ways um, to grow um, their revenue and expand their balance sheets. I think there is a unique opportunity where philanthropists and funders can partner with their charities that they support during this time. So for philanthropists who support charities with a strong track record of effective impact, it's critical where you can to try and um, support them to remain viable to, during this challenging time. There are opportunities, I think, where philanthropists can provide flexible funding support to enable not-for-profits to scale up to provide uh, more or different services that the communities need um, during this time that may help them generate more revenue for the organisation to be part of um, the delivery and recovery uh, and remain um, viable. Also, there's opportunity um, for philanthropists to fund or partner with not-for-profits to specifically advocate for stimulus funding with government in recovery where solutions could be brought and, and, and delivered with the not-for-profit sector who have long years of experience and expertise. So there is certainly opportunity for philanthropists to fund discrete pieces of work, um, either in the advocacy space or in, in the innovation and delivery of new services that are in demand during this time. 
um, and it's critical for funders to also ensure that charities, once they are given these new opportunities, are given the support they need to employ new staff to implement um, these new opportunities. So as um, James has said, it's not all bad news and innovative, flexible and responsive funders can be partner in trying to turn things around for charities during this time. Thanks, Sarah. We'll explore some of those issues in a bit more depth in our next episode of this particular discussion. I'd like to consider the role of boards and obviously directors in these situations. Anna, from the ACNC's perspective, what do you see as uh, boards' roles in these particularly financially difficult times? We expect boards to know how the charity is operating and that includes both its operations on a day-to-day basis as well as what its financial situation is. Clearly, this doesn't mean that all board members or all responsible persons need to be accountants or lawyers or understand technical intricacies of financial management. But it is a reminder that the board is responsible ultimately for the charity and the direction of the charity. And part of this is that it is incumbent upon responsible persons to know how charity finances are going. For those who may not be as financially savvy as others, maybe that board member or responsible person's role is to ask the questions. When things maybe don't seem right, ask the questions of the other responsible persons in order to satisfy themselves as to how the charity is going. It may well be that the responsible persons need to undertake some training or look at additional resources that will assist them in understanding what their obligations are. It's important that all responsible persons understand their obligations contained in the governance standards and for those that are operating outside of Australia, the external conduct standards as well. Um, And I think it is also important to understand that there does remain regulatory oversight for charities. And so not only is it important for responsible persons to understand the situation financially, but it should be recorded as well in case we do ask questions at a later point in time. And also just for general good governance, you need to keep a record of what it is that you've been talking about, the things that you've been thinking about and the various issues and risks that you've been managing. And so that does remain important for all responsible persons. How this is recorded may be, for instance, ensuring that there's a standing agenda item at meetings to discuss the finances of the organisation, including how alternative funding sources could be found or how expenses could be reduced. There could potentially be regular reporting from the appropriate responsible person or even staff member about how the finances are going uh, and an ability for the responsible persons to question at that report as well. So having a full view of all of the finances does allow the board to make the best decisions in respect of the charity. Uh, It may also mean that the board has a good understanding of when perhaps to call in professional assistance when maybe there are issues that they're not equipped to deal with and bring in others to assist.
which is why we've asked Cortamenta to partake of this particular exercise. So before we look at that, that next stage of the process, which we'll address in section two of the podcast, any closing remarks for this particular discussion about diagnosing the problem before we wrap this one up? Thanks, Nick. I might jump in. Anna's made a really good point about the warning signs. So it is extremely important in distressed environments to have a budget, to understand the assumptions that underpin a budget, and to monitor and track performance against the budget. The boards really need to insist on um, developing and giving themselves some, a line of sight into the budget. And um, I think, as Anna put it, the time now is not to ignore it. Now, let's face it, they're, they're not the most interesting topic and they can be quite bleak at the moment. However, the board's role is to really understand it and manage the, uh, the organisation and steer it through a distressed time. So really challenge yourself to understand, and Anna made a very good point saying that if you, you, know, if you need further training, get some support around you and, and really you know, lean on your professional network and the resources available to you at ACNC um, and your professional advisory network just to really understand the financial position and forecast. I think to the other point, you know, once, you, once you agree a budget, it's not a task that can be you know, put, put down once you finish one. A budget is really a live project that needs to be re- revisited at least monthly. Um, so it's really your benchmark that you're comparing yourself to. So make sure you are constantly revisiting your budget, reassessing whether it's accurate, reassessing whether it's achievable, and assessing your performance against the budget because that will challenge you to revisit and assess your the assumptions underpinning the budget. That's a good spot for us to conclude this on. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you, James. Thanks, Sarah. And when we come back, we'll be looking at options in uncertain times. Thanks for listening.